Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. If you're a woman, there's a 75% chance you're deficient in magnesium. And if you are deficient, it can be a problem. Magnesium is critical for supporting a healthy mood, building strong bones, and even moderating your monthly cycle. The good news is, is that women can experience a number of positive health benefits just from getting enough magnesium, including better sleep, more energy, stronger bones, healthy blood pressure, less irritability, a calmer mood, reduced muscle cramping, even fewer migraines. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, health-enhancing effects. But the truth is, most magnesium supplements you'll find in health stores use only the two cheapest synthetic forms. And since they're not full spectrum, they won't fix your magnesium deficiency or do much to support your health. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by BioOptimizers. It's the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress and better sleep, all in one bottle. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed and you'll be amazed by the improvements in your mood and energy levels and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For 10% off and free shipping, use the code JUSTINGREDIENTS at www.magbreakthrough.com backslash JUSTINGREDIENTS. Once again, that's code just ingredients. As a fourth generation physician, Bill Rawls has dedicated his life to medicine. But when faced with a personal health crisis in his late 40s with Lyme disease, everything changed. In his quest to regain his health, Dr. Rawls was confronted with the limitations of conventional medicine and knew he had to find his own path to restore wellness. For the past 15 years, he has extensively studied the science behind herbal therapies and new sustainable approaches for protecting health. Today, Dr. Rawls shares the revelations that helped him and thousands of others reclaim their lives. Dr. Rawls is a leading expert in integrative health and medical director of Vital Plan, a holistic health and herbal supplement company in Raleigh, North Carolina. He is the best-selling author of Unlocking Lyme and his most recent book, The Cellular Wellness Solution, Tap into your full health potential with the science-backed power of herbs. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, I'm really honored to have Dr. Rawls here today. He is going to talk to us about chronic health issues and Lyme disease and herbs and cellular well-being. So I'm really excited to pick his brain about lots of things. So welcome to the show, Dr. Rawls. Thank you. My pleasure. Will you start by telling my listeners just a little bit more about yourself and your health background? Oh, sure. I've been a physician for over 30 years now, and it's uh, I went into the specialty of obstetrics and gynecology because it dealt with wellness, particularly in bringing life into the world. But practicing in a small town, I was doing call every second to third night. And I really wasn't paying attention to my own health habits. And being sleep deprived for 15 or 20 years, I just, my health completely crashed. My whole body fell apart. And at first I identified with fibromyalgia. Later, I found that I was carrying some of the microbes associated with chronic Lyme disease. 
now I don't really distinguish between those two. I think it's all kind of one and the same. Um, but long story short, uh, conventional therapies, antibiotics, those kinds of things really didn't help me. So out of desperation, I turned to herbal therapy with, at first, not very high expectations, but really got my life back. And, you know, I started seeing a, a difference in two or three months. And then over two or three years, all of my symptoms resolved. That's been a decade ago, and I've been able to enjoy absolutely robust health ever since, and have been taking herbs ever, continually since that time. And my passion is studying the, how the herbs, herbs work, how they affect our body, how they affect our cells in particular. Wow, that's an incredible story. I'm going to ask you later on about herbs, about Lyme disease, things like that. But I want to start with chronic illnesses, because I know you talk about this and chronic illnesses is sort of a trendy term. I almost want to say that you hear on social media because everybody's talking about chronic illnesses. So I don't think it's a trendy term. Let's just tell the listeners what chronic illness really is. Yeah, well, it kind of depends on who you ask, but there's no doubt about it. It ought to be a pretty important topic because right now the CDC defines that 60% of the American population is struggling with some kind of chronic health condition, chronic wow. illness. So it's out there, 60%. That's a lot of people. And so despite spending more on health care than any country on the face of this earth by a very wide margin, we're one of the most unhealthy in the de developed world. So it should be a topic that we're all paying attention to. So why, why is chronic illness going up and what exactly is chronic illness? Well, if you ask a conventional physician, they would say it's a diagnosis. You know, we you come in with symptoms and we do lab tests and we do other diagnostic criteria to see if you qualify for one diagnosis or another diagnosis. And that's what chronic illness is. But I started looking at it very differently when I actually became chronically ill to really ask what's going on inside the body and what's driving these things. And over time, I carried it all the way down to that cellular level. So when we think about chronic illness by the manifestations, the symptoms or the abnormal lab values or other kinds of things. But what it really is, is sick cells. So we're, we're beings composed of living cells. Our body is made up of several trillion cells. Everything that happens inside the body, whether that's your heart beating or thyroid hormone being produced or brain cells firing, it's all done by cells every single thing. And when those cells get sick, that's when you get sick. That's when those outward manifestations occur. So symptoms are a reflection of cells being stressed or injured or basically cellular sickness. So when we get around to that diagnosis thing, if you really ask the questions differently about what's stressing the cells, yeah, that's that's really important. So what chronic illness is, is when cells in the body are chronically stressed. Well, so I was just going to ask you, what is making these cells chronically stressed? Yeah, question of the day. And it's the one that doctors don't ask. And it's because most of our medical therapies really don't address 
those stress factors. So in forming a diagnosis, we're moving toward what is the correct medical therapy to help the person. So what drugs do is relieve manifestations of illness. It suppresses the symptoms or sometimes slows progression of the illness. But because we're not really addressing the stress factors, those underlying stress factors that are driving the illness, people never get well. And that's why we're having so much chronic illness. Moving the other way, the question I started asking a long time ago is, why is the person sick? Why was I sick? What was going on? And some things were obvious. You know, if you don't sleep and eat a bad diet and stay stressed all your life, you're going to get run down. Well, basically, that's your cells are going to get run down. They're going to run out of energy. They're going to start de degrading and dying off faster. And so that that's what happens. But I started cataloging those things, and I got it down to five categories of things that cause all chronic illness. So very briefly, it's what we eat, our diet, what goes in our mouth, and how we nourish ourselves. Our environment, so many, there's so many toxins in the environment now. Toxic substances are become, have become very prevalent. Um, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of chemicals that have been put in the environment that weren't here 100 years ago. And they're in our food, they're in our water, and we're getting low doses of these things all the time, and they interrupt cellular functions. Three, big one for me, chronic stress. If you're chronically stressed, you don't give your cells downtime to recover. So your cells work really hard. They need some downtime. And they get that downtime, especially at night when you sleep. Average sleep in America is six and a half hours. That's not enough. We need a good solid seven and a half, seven and a half to eight hours of good sleep. So that's three. Number four is physical factors. Now that can be anything from trauma. You know, you get hit by a truck that does a lot of cellular damage all the way from being sedentary. So being sedentary is not having physical activity is detrimental to our cells because when we exercise, when we are physically active, we move blood, we increase our heart rate, we dilate our blood vessels. And what that does is flushes the space around our cells that carries away waste products and built up toxins and debris. Really important for our cells to get that. It allows them to breathe. So that those are four factors. Number five, this is the big one. And this is where what chronic Lyme disease carried me into is the microbe factor. And the fact of the matter is we're exposed to microbes throughout our lifetime. And many of them end up embedded and dormant in our tissues, in our, inside of our cells, in our brain, in our heart, in our liver, in our joints, in our muscles. And we didn't know about this 30 years ago, but it's only been like in the past five or 10 years that we're really starting to appreciate how big this variable is. So if you eat a bad diet, don't nourish yourselves properly, stay in a toxic environment, don't get sleep and don't get exercise, your cells become weakened. And when your cells are weak, all these microbes you've been collecting through your lifetime start reactivating, start breaking down cells and creating an environment that favors microbe growth. That's what chronic illness is. 
And it comes in a lot of different varieties because we have a lot of different cell types in our body. Those stress factors come together differently. And we all pick up different microbes, different spectrum of microbes as we go through life. So, but when you start putting chronic illness in terms of the causes of, uh, you know, what's happening there, what it says is you're, there's a lot you can do to one, prevent it or two, overcome it if you happen to end up that way. That's really interesting. Okay. So when people say like, oh, eating poor or eating non-nutritious foods is not good for your health, you actually would say, well, eating not nutritious foods is actually not good for your cellular health. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's all about cells, right? So different cells need different nutrients, right? Your heart is, uh, you know, it, your heart is beating all the time, you know, and it's, it's that slow grind that it just has to keep going every day. And it uses mainly fat for energy. Your brain cells, though, and, and sometimes muscles, like when you're running a sprint, we need fast energy. So they need glucose. So, you know, different energy, but we don't necessarily need a lot of any of those things, but our cells need vitamins and minerals and amino acids and all of these things to, and they need a continuous supply of it. And most of that comes from our diet. So when we talk about eating whole foods, you hear that a lot, right? So what we're doing when we're eating whole foods is we're eating whole cells. So whole foods are also things made out of cells. You know, your stick of broccoli is made of cells. Uh, if you eat meat, uh, a piece of salmon is made out of cells. Well, all those cells automatically have all the kind of nutrients that your cells need. But that's different when you take a grain product and just pull the carbohydrate out and throw away everything else. Ah, that's not so good. And that's not what we're designed for. So interesting. I talk about eating whole foods all the time on my page, but I've never really right. approached it as the whole food is full of cells that are going to then go nourish your cells. So I right. like that take on it. So I have a question for you. If this is so scientific about our cells being injured, causing these chronic illnesses, why don't more doctors talk about treating the injured cells rather than just uh, treating the symptoms? Well, there are, there are a couple of reasons for that. And the big reason is we're, we're not trained to do that, but also we don't have the right toolbox to do that, right? So we tend to use what we know and what we're trained to use. And doctors are trained to use pharmaceutical therapy and surgical technologies. And pharmaceutical therapies and drugs are excellent for stabilizing a bad situation. In other words, somebody comes in with acute illness or an acute uh, exacerbation of a chronic illness, like a heart attack, like a broken leg. We're very, very good at stabilizing that illness with medical therapy. So when you look at our medical system, we do a great job at acute intervention. That's what we do. And we, you know, and, and it's really important in certain stages of illness to stabilize the body to allow healing to take place. But healing comes from inside. What healing specifically is, is the ability of cells to regenerate and repair. That's what healing is. So we're not really doing that with drugs or surgery. You know, I mean, I recognized a long time ago as a physician that no matter how 
drug choices were or how precise my surgical skills were, if the patient's body had lost the ability to heal, things weren't going to go very well. So acute intervention is what we do well. So the problem is we don't have tools to reduce these stress factors. And drugs don't reduce these stress factors. They purely block manifestations of illness. They block symptoms artificially. They block progression of illness artificially, but they don't. Now, there aren't any drugs that truly address cellular stress. Hmm. So it's a big limitation. And that's why people don't typically get well, because we're applying that acute intervention to chronic illness on an ongoing basis. It's like somebody with high blood pressure. Some, if someone came into my office with a blood pressure of 160 over 120, ah, they're going to get a medication because I want to bring it down before it does some acute damage. But they're going to have to stay on that medication. So we're not addressing why the vascular system is off and high, and their blood pressure is high. We're just artificially blocking the elevation, and we do that every day. But all those drugs have side effects. You know, I experienced that firsthand. Um, when I was in my 30s, I was diagnosed with essential hypertension. In other words, it's something that's just me, and I'm going to have it the whole, my whole life, and it's going to get worse. And I tried all the different medications for it, and I just couldn't tolerate any of them. They made me feel terrible. So eventually, I just decided, you know, I'm just going to have to live with that and ignore it. And along came uh, this health crisis in my late 40s and early 50s. And by then I was just, you know, I wasn't thinking about my blood pressure or anything else. I was just trying to stay alive. But I started the herbs and, I, you know, I changed my diet. I did all of these things. My blood pressure got better. And now at age 65, on any given exam, my blood pressure will be like eh, 117, 120 over 75 perfectly normal, no medications. So what happened was taking these herbs, changing my lifestyle, addressed the factors in my vascular system that were causing the hypertension and it restored normal balance. And when that happened, my blood pressure went to normal. So I didn't have essential hypertension. I just wasn't taking care of my body. Okay. So that's really interesting. And you talked about that doctors don't have the toolboxes to help people understand about cellular health. So do people just need to be empowered themselves to understand how to best help our cells? It's a big part of it. And I think that's something that we don't do a very good job of is teaching people that they actually have much more control over their well-being then they recognize. And, you know, so we should be talking about these things as a society, as a culture, much more than we do. It's very, very important. And uh, we just don't, you know, so much of it is because so much of everything that we're exposed to is driven by the food industry that doesn't really care about our health and the healthcare industry that really depends on us to be being chronically ill to stay in business. It's, you know, all of this is big business. And so it does kind of leave it to us. But that personal accountability is scary. You know, I mean, it's um, nobody likes to think, well, maybe I'm causing these symptoms, causing my illness. We'd rather go into the doctor and say, well, just give me something to get rid of them. 
But, you know, if, if, if we have to make that decision that we're actually contributing to these things, that's harder. That's harder. It's tougher for people. But I think we do have to get beyond some of that and recognize that, yes, you, you really do have to pay attention in life if you really want to extract the level of life that most people expect. Okay, so we need to know more about our cellular health in order to feel good, basically. And so yeah. we can heal ourselves, repair ourselves, keep ourselves healthy by the five things that you said, right? Like the whole foods, the sleep, the exercise, things like that. And you mentioned that drugs don't help our cells. So I'm assuming herbs can help our cells. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at herbs as kind of weak versions of drugs, and it took a health crisis for me to understand that herbs and drugs aren't anything alike. It's apples and oranges. You just not, you, you have to look at them as offering different things. Now, when we say herbs, I, I think I, w I, I do want to say that, you know, herbs, ex that, that span of what we call herbs extends everything from culinary herbs that we add into our food and some of our vegetables all the way to, to plants that do have drug-like effects. And, you know, many of our drugs actually came from plants. But that getting out at the end, that end of the spectrum, you're looking at plants that were are typically defined as poisons. So a lot of our drugs would could have to be classified as therapeutically dosed poisons. You know, you take too much of ibuprofen and it's going to make you really sick. So where I, the sweet spot that I like to look at for herbs is this category of herbs that's kind of in the middle that has all these health promoting properties, but it has a low potential for drug-like effects and side effects. So when we look at those herbs, what we're doing is affecting our cells in a positive way. So you think about it, you know, plants are living organisms, just like we are. Plants have to take care of their cells. So all plants have a chemical defense system that protects plant cells against free radicals, toxic substances, radiation, and all kinds of stress factors, including microbes of every variety. So every herb has some antimicrobial properties. All plants have antimicrobial properties. They have to, to stay alive. Oh. Some more so than others, depending on the plant's environment and what kind of stress factors the plant is dealing with. Plants also, this chemical makeup of the plant also includes chemical regulators. So when we think about our body, we, you know, we hear about hormones and nerves and neurotransmitters and all of this sort of thing. Well, what those things are doing is coordinating cellular functions. Mm -hmm. So we feel well when all of our cells are healthy, but all of our cells are coordinated. So all of our cells are working together to make us work as a unit. And that means that cells have to be talking to other, each other all the time. And so our brain is sensing what's going on around us and inside of us and is using nerves and neurotransmitters to tell our cells what to do. And then our cells are talking to one another to make sure that all those functions are coordinated. So it's a pretty sensitive system. Well, plants have that too. I mean, from the daisy that's growing in your yard all the way to a sequoia in California, plants are coordinating their cellular functions and they actually use a lot of the same chemical messengers that we do. So 
When we take an herb, we're getting the plant's defenses and regulatory functions within the plant. So the herbs that I'm talking about happen to have things in them that balance our hormones and also protect our cells. So it it just where you know when we're stressed, it can help balance our stress hormones. When we are confronted with different kinds of microbes and all kinds of other stress factors, we get that extra protection for not just one cell in the body, but all the cells in the body. So when you look at it that way, this chemical, this complex chemistry of the herb, when we take it in protecting ourselves, it reduces cellular stress. It's helping us against all those variables that I talked about. So when cells aren't stressed or when that stress is relieved, they can work harder, they can regenerate and repair, which is what healing is. So herbs, when you take an herb, it promotes healing. There isn't a drug on earth that can make that statement. So not to say that our, our medical therapies are bad. Again, they're really important for acute, acute intervention, but Pulling in the herbs allows us to do something that our medical therapies really fall short in. I love how you just explained herbs and their defense system and how that benefits us. That's the best way I've heard them described. But I have a question about herbs and plants. You hear a lot, especially on uh, social media lately, about phytochemicals. So can you tell us what phytochemicals are? Because that's part of the plant as well. That's it. You know, that's when we say phytochemical, that stands for plant chemical. So all the things that I've been talking about are the phytochemistry, the phytochemicals of the plant. That's what it is. Okay, perfect. Well, then I have a question for you. Do you have favorite herbs or are there specific herbs that are beneficial for improving cellular wellness? Of course I do. <laughs> there are lots of great herbs. I have a lot of favorites, quite frankly, and I've I've, I've enjoyed a lot of different herbs. Um, herbs, you know, I would never try drugs just to experience them, but I do try herbs to experience them. Um, so I've, I've used a lot of herbs over time. You know, one thing about the herbs is taking one herb doesn't give you as much value as taking multiple herbs together because each plant has a little bit different phytochemistry and it depends on the plant's environment and the plant and the stress factors that it's having to deal with what kind of solutions it's built building so when you take multiple things you get you know maybe a little bit better protection of heart cells with one herb or brain cells with another herb so you we have this spectrum of things when you take them together it creates this wonderful synergy that you get overall protection so I do have herbs and you know, with certain herbs we use more for specific properties, like some herbs are sedating and help with stress or sleep or things like that. But my what I call my daily herbs are herbs that I would want to take every day just to protect my cells. And these are herbs that have low potential for drug-like effects or side effects. So you could take them for the rest of your life and you're not going to have any negative effects. Most of them are liver protective, which is really important. I hear a lot of people say, well, you're taking all these chemicals, but these chemicals are things that humans have been exposed to for hundreds of thousands of years. So we are built to to use them and most of them are protective. So most of the herbs I'm talking about 
actually are known to protect liver functions, which is really important. Drugs don't do that, but herbs can, and there are many herbs that protect liver function. So top of my list is an herb called rhodiola, um, rhodiola. It's, uh, it's from Siberia and where there's a cold, harsh environment, right? And they, and in that environment, that, that, uh, that herb is pumping out chemicals to protect against those physical stresses. Well, it turns out that it's really good for protecting us against physical stresses, long working hours, hard work, that sort of thing. Um, it's an immune modulator, which it means it balances the immune system. It increases oxygenation of tissues. It helps our vascular system work better. It's protecting our cells. And interestingly, this herb that grows in Siberia, yeah, a long way away, hard to get. Well, it grows in Alaska too, but I also found out there's a close relative that grows in the Appalachian Mountains of North America. So that's something interesting is you look at all these herbal traditions, and I studied all the herbal traditions around the world, and what you find is they're using plants that are very similar, and plants have close relatives all around the world. So we find a lot of similarities of things that we can use. They're, they're, they're medicinal plants all around you, wherever you are, I promise. So rhodiola is a good one. Um, next on my list is reishi mushroom not a plant. So in herbology, in our herbal practice, to most herbalists include medicinal mushrooms because they have chemicals that are similar to the phytochemicals from plants that are protective. Reishi mushroom, if you go hiking in the woods and see a mushroom growing on the side of the tree that looks like a fan and it has kind of a rainbow rust color, that's a reishi. There are reishis that grow all around the world. But the Asian species has been found to have some of the most potent cancer, anti-cancer properties known. Um, so definitely want that, right? It also, it's immune modulator, antiviral properties, protective of all of our organs. Uh, turmeric, that's always on my list. That's a good herb. That's in, in curries in India. Um, people in India eat about a gram of turmeric every day, and it's thought to be one of the reasons why they have such a low rate of Alzheimer's and cancer. Very interesting. Um, but it's really good for reducing inflammation, protecting your joints, that sort of thing. Go to cola, uh, another one from India. It is really good for brain protection. And it's... Um, so that 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 definitely is on my list. It's known as one of these herbs that just promotes life. So it was something that people took regularly. Again, found out recently there's a close cousin that grows on on the coast of South Carolina. So we find those similar plants all around the world, um, and they're so available to our use. Um, milk thistle. Um, really important for protecting liver function. You know, we're all getting bombarded with toxins more than ever before. And a quarter of the American population has been found to have fatty liver. Their liver cells are replaced with fat cells that don't do anything. Really important to protect your liver. All of the herbs that I mentioned do that. 
except that milk thistle has been found to actually stimulate regeneration of liver cells. You can build new liver cells and that herb protects the liver cells and encourages that to happen. So that's just a few on my list, um, but it's, uh, yeah, there's some other good ones. The other herbs that I used in my recovery that have stronger antimicrobial properties. So there, there's really, uh, you know, there's a lot of great stuff out there. There are some amazing herbs out there, and I love all five that you mentioned. Um, when I was on a healing journey, I actually took rhodiola all the time and turmeric all the time. I need to be better at taking those. But these five that you just mentioned, can people take them on a daily basis every day for years and years? I would strongly encourage them to. Um, I've been taking herbs, mostly those herbs, uh, continue along with some other herbs too, for uh, probably about 15 years now. And golly, my my healing capacity at age 65 sometimes just really surprises me. My body is very resilient. It's, it's uh, really pretty amazing. That's incredible. So I always get asked when I talk about herbs, if people can overdose on them, can they or not necessarily? You can, but it's hard to do, right? So like I said, you take a whole bottle of ibuprofen and you can count on being pretty sick. You take a whole bottle of a sleeping pills and you might not wake up. Less true with herbs, especially the herbs I'm talking about. So again, they're definitely herbs that fit into the category of being drug-like and those would be more concerning. But the herbs that I talk about in the, my book have a very, very high high, very, very, very low potential for toxicity. And it, you have to take a lot of them to actually get sick. Uh, I remember one of the extracts that we were using in our company, you know, the company, uh, the, 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 the supplier that we bought it from had done a toxicology study and found to get really a toxic dose of that particular extract, you would have to take 3000 capsules a day. Wow. Yeah. And that's true with a lot of herbs. So the toxicity dose is much higher than people think. So good to know. Okay, so question for you, because you're taking these like a daily multivitamin, it almost sounds like. And so do you recommend that people take vitamins as well, or they can get their cellular health from just herbs and they don't need the vitamins? Yeah, you know, I've been having this discussion with people for uh, almost two decades now, the <laughs> multivitamin. Um in my company, we produce a multivitamin. Um, you know, I started formulating my own products uh, probably about 10 years ago. And the first product that I formulated was just an herbal product, a little bit like the one I just mentioned. And um, people just didn't accept it because it didn't have the multivitamin, you know, the vitamins in it. So we ended up creating a product that uh, had vitamins and minerals in it. But it was, you know, I was like, you look at your average multivitamin, these are synthetic forms that really aren't well assimilated by the body. So we created a product that had the bioavailable forms um, in it for people who need, who felt like they needed it. And it's probably true, people who are overcoming a chronic illness, especially people with methylation issues and that sort of thing, they need the extra B vitamins, extra C, and certain things, you know, certain times of the year, we all need extra D. But um, as a general rule, you're going to do a better job of getting your vitamins from, from your food. All right. Think about it this way. What these things are are nutrients. And what nutrients are, are things that cells need to function. 
right? Cells need carbohydrates and fats to produce energy. Cells need amino acids to make proteins. All the machinery of the cell is protein. But they also need cofactors, which are what vitamins and minerals are to generate energy for the mitochondria to generate energy and for the cells to do the normal work that they do. And different cells in the body need different things. So they, they, don't, they can't really store this stuff inside very well. So they need to have it all around. So it's got to be floating in the bloodstream and continually coming to the cell. So if you take a multivitamin one time a day, you're you're getting a little extra dose of that. But if that's the main source of your vitamins, your cells are going to be struggling because they need that all day long. So it's really to, better to make sure you have a good diet and you have a pretty steady supply of those nutrients that your body needs. So I put whole food diet first, vegetables more than anything else. That's your best source of these vital nutrients that your cells need to function. If you want to take a multivitamin on top of that, I don't have any problem with that. Um, and I think certain people do benefit from it, but get one that has the bioavailable forms of the vitamins. So that's important. If you give me a choice of whether to take an herb, like an herbal product, like I just mentioned, or just a vitamin product, I'm going to pick the herbs every time. So think about it this way. When cells are stressed, they work harder. When cells work harder, they have they demand more energy and they need more nutrients. They're turning over more nutrients and they're having to tap their mitochondria harder to, to get energy. So if your cells are stressed, you do need more nutrients, but taking herbs reduces cellular stress. So if you take herbs, it's going to reduce the workload of the cell, reduce the energy demands of the cell, and reduce the nutrient demands of the cell. So even though herbs aren't a good source of nutrients, you know, herbs are a great source of these protective phytochemicals, but not nutrients. You don't get that much vitamins or minerals or carbohydrates or anything else from herbs. You want them for the chemistry. But taking that, reducing the cellular stress, reduces how much of those nutrients your cells are going to need. So you don't need as many vitamins and minerals if you're taking the herbs because you're, the herbs are protecting your cells. That is really interesting. I've never heard it described that way before. Okay, so herbs are full of phytochemicals, so are fruits and veggies, but do herbs then have more phytochemicals than the fruits and veggies? Oh, yeah. I would say the biggest thing that's missing in our modern diet is phytochemicals. We, for hundreds of thousands of years as humans, ate a forage food diet, which was about two-thirds plants, but specifically wild plants. About 10,000 years ago, we started cultivating our food. So we shifted from just getting whatever calories were in the wild food to, to creating food that had a preference for calories. So when we started cultivating food, we changed our plants and we started building them in a way that you know, we wanted them to produce more and more and more calories. We also shifted to seeds and beans because seeds and beans are easy to store and they're loaded with calories. They're not necessarily a good source of vitamins or chemicals or any or phytochemicals or anything else. So you look at today's diet, 
It's seed and grain based and then meat that's fed seeds and grains. We just don't eat our vegetables like we should. So we're not getting our vitochemicals there. But even if we're doing what I think is important of eating more vegetables than anything else, all of our vegetables are, are really good, healthy vegetables like celery and broccoli and all of these things are cultivated in preference of producing calories. They're also grown in very, very controlled situations, right? So we want to protect our food plants so we get a high yield of calories from our food plants. As we've done that over the years, we've decreased the ability of the plant to protect itself. So our cultivated plants, they don't, they don't generate those protective phytochemicals like they used to because we've kind of bred it out of them. You know, they've been kind of, they've had a sheltered existence so long that they just don't do it anymore. So we have, that's one of the reasons we have to use so much herbicide and pesticide in our foods because we've shifted their growth to produce uh, calories instead of phytochemicals. So I'm not, I am, I do think that everybody needs to eat vegetables, vegetable fiber. You do get some phytochemistry there. There are, you know, it's a great source of nutrients, but if you want that robust phytochemical production, you need to move toward an herb and getting herbs reliably in this day and time, the most practical way to do that is taking supplements. This is so interesting. I'm sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, I feed my kids fruits and veggies to get the phytochemicals, and yet I rarely give them herbs. So I'm thinking, well, I need to switch this around and give more herbs in my house to the kids. Well, giving them herbs is great, but you keep pushing the fruits and veggies, you know? And, yes, and I my- will. Yeah, it, it's it's really important. Um, but, you know, you think about it, look, look at a blueberry or a blackberry or really any fruit that's cultivated today and compare it to its wild counterpart. Yeah, there's just, you know, there's, there's so much uh, less in the way of calories in the, the wild counterpart, but it's, you know, a ton times, 10 times more of the phytochemistry, even a blueberry. Um, the protective phytochemicals in a wild blueberry are much higher than our cultivated blueberries. And blueberries are one of the healthiest foods that we can eat. And the wild blueberries per cup are quite a bit less lower in uh, carbohydrate. You know, you take a cup of our cultivated blueberries, it's about 25 grams of carbohydrate. Wild blueberries, 15 to 17 grams of carbohydrate, quite a bit less. Yeah. Okay. So I'm thinking right now, okay, I have a lot of moms that watch or listen to this show. And as a mom myself, I'm thinking, well, it's easy to give my kids fruits and veggies because I know they're all safe. I can just feed them whatever fruits and veggies. But when it comes to herbs, I know it can get confusing sometimes because even I do this because I'm not well-versed in herbs like I should be. But I always am wondering, shoot, can I give this one to a kid? Can I give it to a toddler? Can I give it to a baby? You know, so I mean, are there certain regulations with herbs and kids and ages or not necessarily? You hear a lot about regulation of the supplement industry, and there are parts of it. Again, you know, there there are definitely some shady companies out there selling some controversial herbs that do have drug-like properties. 
But these other herbs, the ones that I talk about in my book and everything, everybody that I speak with, these herbs are very forgiving. And, you know, in our various programs that we have helped people recover from various kinds of conditions, we've had, you know, young children, six years old, um, using these herbs very successfully. The, you know, the, the potential for toxicity is very low. Often the, the 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 thing is just getting the herbs in them, you know. So it's uh, a lot of the herbs are very bitter. Um, and if you look at this, you know, a lot of our wild plants were bitter uh, things that humans used to eat, uh, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years in a forage diet. They didn't eat it because it tasted good. They ate it, they ate it because they had to eat enough of it to get the calories. And what they were getting as a byproduct were all these phytochemicals. So as we moved away from that forage food diet to a cultivated food diet and shifted towards seeds and beans, grains and beans as our food supply, which was, you know, it was more reliable. It was uh, easier in some ways than we didn't give up that ancient forage past. We didn't give up our wild plants. We kept them in the form of culinary and medicinal herbs. So everybody knows about our culinary herbs and spices, you know, basil and oregano and cinnamon and turmeric and all of these things that we use to flavor our food. But what people don't realize, we're using predominantly to flavor food now, but for the most of history, what they were used for more importantly was preventing spoilage. Because all of these herbs had antioxidants and antimicrobial properties, they cut down bacterial and fungal growth. So food lasted longer. So herbs and spices were really important to prolong the, the shelf life of food. But, you know, we, we didn't, some of our herbs just didn't taste good enough to put in our food. So retain that is our traditional herbalism. So we separate, so the big thing that separates culinary herbs from medicinal herbs is medicinal herbs just don't taste good. They're very bitter and we didn't, we don't want to put them in our food because we don't really enjoy them very much. Um, but that's the biggest difference. All of our culinary herbs, yeah, they have some great medicinal properties, just as much as our medicinal herbs, but they don't taste as good. So we reserve those for as medicines. And typically we take them as a tincture or in capsules and things like that. So most of the herbs out there then are safe for kids. I'd say the vast majority of them. Now, when you get into that, you know, you hear a lot about contamination with heavy metals and pesticides and all of that sort of thing, because quite frankly, the whole world is contaminated with chemicals and it's hard to keep it out of your food. So uh, working with a reliable company that does the levels of testing that uh, you need, um, our company, we test test the products at three different levels to make sure that, that, that all of that is clean. And, you know, so buying a reliable product, developing a relationship with a company, um, and finding companies, I mean, you know, I developed my company to look at the health aspects of the herb, uh, of taking herbs more from taking them on a daily basis to promote wellness, 
where I think a lot of companies are focused on take these herbs for your these symptoms kind of like you would a drug because that's what everybody's used to. So that's, I think, uh, where I see herbs very differently. I think there's a lot of value in that too, but, you know, but taking these herbs more uh, just for promoting health and keeping us healthy is, uh, is something that I think people are missing out on. Okay, good to know. I have a question, though, about adaptogens, because adaptogens are herbs that help the body with stress. So are they helping the cellular at the cellular level differently than other herbs? No, they're not, except for this. All right. So rhodiola is an adaptogen. Turmeric is not an adaptogen. Both of them are just robust cellular protectants. So what's the difference? By definition, adaptogens are herbs that balance our central hormone pathways, our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, our stress pathways. So adaptogens balance stress hormones. Other herbs like turmeric or hawthorn, that's really wonderful for the heart, they have wonderful protective properties, but they don't do, do as much to balance our stress hormones. It's fine to take both. And again, in the mixtures that I have, there's some adaptogens. Reishi is considered an adaptogen and some that are more just protective. Um, so you again, you combine the different herbs to get the different properties and you get this wonderful synergy. So there are many adaptogens. Um, in the beginning, now this was research uh, that was done in Russia many years ago. They were looking for things that would improve worker performance, make it easier for um, people to do their job and just feel normal. And rhodiola was one of the original adaptogens. Uh, ginseng was another, uh, raponicum uh, and Siberian ginseng. Those were the main the, the main four. Now there are dozens of adaptogens because we found that just so many different herbs have those particular properties. Okay, I want to move on to a new topic because I have a lot of followers that deal with Lyme disease, and I know you dealt with Lyme disease. So I would love to hear more about your journey, how you healed, and how herbs played a part in your Lyme disease. Yeah, my experience from the Lyme disease is, is now about uh, two decades long that I have been either struggling with it myself or helping other people overcome it. And I was in a situation where my whole body was falling apart. I had severe heart involvement. My heart was skipping beats every second to third beat. I had chronic chest pain, shortness of breath. I ended up with a cardiac cath. Uh, brain fog, my joints were falling apart, my intestinal tract was a mess. I mean, basically everything. I mean, I had blurry vision, just every part of my body was being affected. And again, first I identified with fibromyalgia, but nobody wants that diagnosis because there's not really anything they can do for it except give uh, uh, symptomatic therapies. And everybody with fibromyalgia wants a diagnosis of Lyme disease because they think, well, if I can get that positive test, then I can take antibiotics and get well. And that's what I thought at the time. So I struggled and there wasn't much doubt I was carrying the bacteria because I spent my whole life in the woods uh, growing up, especially I got tick bites all the time. But what I didn't know is that how much these things could stay dormant in tissues and it's, uh, and I, you know, and I'm sure I picked him up when I was a kid, 
finally found that, uh, you know, that I was carrying these microbes, took antibiotics, they made me sicker more than well. And that was obviously not a good pathway. And basically, I just lost faith in the conventional system completely because nobody could figure out how to help me. At that time, I had stopped practicing obstetrics and I just couldn't do it anymore. But I couldn't declare disability. I started a wellness practice, really didn't know what that was at the time. I just was persistent to get mine back and help other people along the way. And But that kind of trapped me that I didn't have the money or the ability to travel and you know talk to other people and, and see other doctors or therapists or get other kinds of therapy. And I happened to read a book about uh, an herbal protocol designed for Lyme disease. And Honestly, I didn't have high expectations, but I had run out of options. And I took this protocol and I started getting better. And and at that time, I thought, well, I'm just killing microbes. It's working. The antimicrobial properties of these herbs are working. You know, it's killing the microbes. But, you know, it was it was fits and starts and and up and down for about four or five years I, you know, I'd run out of the herbs. I'd stop taking them. It was back and forth. And finally, I just said, you know, I feel better while I'm taking the herbs. I'm just going to keep going. And I did. And I got better every year. And I've been helping people do the same thing. I have since studied Lyme disease, chronic Lyme disease, um, and herbal protocols or herbs that might be beneficial for that in particular. I've tried an awful lot of different herbs over the years and created protocols and pathways for people to get well. Um, At current count, we've had over 13,000 people go through our program, and it's um, a a very large percentage of those people got their lives back. Wow. So it does require, you know, working to get your health back. I mean, you have to regain being able to sleep again and eat a better diet and all of those things. But the herbs just did amazing things. I was yeah. going to say, that's incredible. You've helped so many people because I have numerous friends with Lyme disease. But I want to ask you a couple things about Lyme disease. So your heart skipping beats, your chronic joint pain, are those typical symptoms of uh, Lyme disease or are there other symptoms? Yeah, yeah. To pretty much everybody has some variation of that. But guess what? So do people with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and autoimmune disease and a whole slew of other diseases. And it gets back to the thing I was talking about in the beginning, right? So these are pretty low-grade pathogens. I'm coming around to the conclusion that most people who get bitten by a tick that carries Borrelia, the microbe associated with Lyme disease, don't get acutely sick. I don't think acute Lyme disease is very common at all. 95% of the people that I have worked with over the past decade do not remember a tick bite or do not remember becoming chronically ill around the time of a tick bite. And what that means is we pick these things up, but if we're healthy at that period of their time, if our cells are healthy, then they just become part of our system and they become dormant inside our cells. But guess what? It's not just Borrelia. They found that one tick species can carry over 237 different families of bacteria. Wow. That meant 
So ticks are carrying an awful lot of things. So what we know about is just the very, just barely scratching the surface. So there are an awful lot of things that ticks carry, but these are low grade pathogens. These things have been, you know, ticks have been biting humans since the beginning of time. Um, so these things, so, but it's not just that. We pick up mycoplasma and chlamydia and just scores of different things through our lifetime. Recent studies are showing that bacteria from your gut, from your skin, from your sinuses, from your gums are constantly trickling across into your bloodstream. And many of those things get embedded in your tissues, in your brain, in your heart, all over your body. So when I look at any chronic illness, including chronic Lyme disease, what I think I'm looking at is a reactivation of not a bacteria, but everything the person has picked up in their whole lifetime, which means that targeting a bacteria with a antibiotic to get well is futile. It just doesn't work. That's where the beauty of the herbs are because one of the really interesting properties about the herbs is they're selective. As you remember, I told you that the herbs are a defense system. An antibiotic is a single random chemical. So the herbs aren't just random chemicals, you're getting a whole system there that has antibacterial properties, antiviral properties, all of these things, but it's selective for pathogens. So all those years that I took herbs, unlike antibiotics, we know that antibiotics will trash your normal flora and make a mess out of your gut, right? The herbs made my gut better because the herbs don't kill your normal flora. They suppress the pathogens. And that makes sense because a plant would want to take care of its friendly flora and not and, and suppress its pathogens too. So I actually found that when I was writing my new book is I found a study that somebody had actually looked at and found that herbs suppress pathogens when you take them in the gut, but they don't disrupt normal flora. In fact, I found that taking herbs works better than a probiotic. That is so interesting because having these friends that have Lyme disease, I know the very first thing the doctors do is put them on an antibiotic protocol. And so why are so many doctors doing this then? Well, doctors just don't understand Lyme disease and they're not trained to understand Lyme disease. And I don't think that's coming anytime soon, unfortunately. Antibiotics are the, the right answer for someone who is acutely bitten by a tick and is symptomatic because at that point in time, there's a high concentration of bacteria that are coursing through the bloodstream. And taking an antibiotic acutely for that 20-day period will help knock down those numbers to decrease the the person being symptomatic and possibly decrease them from uh, decrease their risk of having chronic something chronic later. That makes sense. But it doesn't work all the time because I can tell you I've seen lots of people who got a tick bite, became symptomatic, got antibiotics and then developed chronic Lyme disease later. So can you give us a few herbs that are good for those that have Lyme disease or does it differ for each person? No, there are some things. And actually a couple of years ago, Johns Hopkins looked at some of our best herbs for Lyme disease and found they actually had a higher 
potential to kill Borrelia and other associated co-infections than antibiotics did. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. So uh, top of my list is Japanese knotweed, cat's claw, Chinese skullcap, andrographis, and these are covering for not only Lyme disease, but anybody with chronic Lyme disease will tell you, they have a whole bunch of co-infections too. Well, even the things they're being tested for, that's just scratching the surface. Truly, there's a lot more to it than we are seeing. Um, but the herbs are covering for all of those things. So there's some basic ones. In my protocols, I add in reishi mushrooms, cordyceps, sometimes several adaptogens, um, and along uh, with some specialized nutrients like glutathione uh, and all of these things. But um, so you know, we, I have a protocol that we put together just to make it easy for people to get you know, the, the, the concentrations. So there are a lot of products out there. And what I caution people on is if you go buy a $30 bottle of tincture, just a single bottle, and you're taking 10 or 20 drops of that a day, it isn't going to do anything. It's just not a high concentration of phytochemistry. And you have to have a lot to make it work. And you have to have that synergy of taking the different herbs too. Well, I have so many listeners that have Lyme disease. I know that they're going to be really mad that I'm wrapping up the show right now because <laughs> I have so many questions I could ask you in their behalf. So maybe I need to have you come back to do a whole show just on Lyme disease. But I would be glad to. As we wrap up here, could you just tell my listeners that are dealing with Lyme disease, maybe where they should start or maybe where they could find you? Any tips for them? Well, yeah, we... Um... I wrote a book several years ago called Unlocking Lyme that details uh, that whole Lyme recovery process. Um, my most current book, The Cellular Wellness Solution, kind of expands that journey in looking at you know how these things affect everybody and looking at that cellular wellness component. Um, but many people, many of our Lyme patients have found a lot of value in that book also. Um, and both of them go into pretty great detail about that, that spectrum of herbs that is safe for us to use for these kinds of recovery. But also years ago, I set up a program called the Restore Program or the kit, the supplements are called the Restore Kit that people can find at vitalplan.com. And, you know, this is something that uh, we've been using, I guess, about seven or eight years now and literally thousands of people uh, with a very high potential uh, for recovery with it. Okay, good to know. Thank you for sharing that. And I will link stuff in the show notes so people can find you because I know they're going to have questions and your book seems like a great resource for them. So thank you so much for being here. I know I have learned quite a bit about herbs. I did not realize the phytochemical aspect of them. And so mm -hmm. I'm excited to go learn more about herbs and give more to my kids. So Thank you again for being here, but I always close my show by asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? Yeah, just life itself. I mean, I just get up every day and just feel grateful. And I look back at this journey that I had some pretty rough spots and just, you know, that, that I, I just learned so much. It just, 
you know, I became a better physician because I became chronically ill. And I just look back and go, wow, what an opportunity you've had that has been so remarkably special and especially to enjoy the good health that I do today um, because of all that. Because of that journey, I am healthier today than I would have been if that had not happened. I love that. Life is so important. And each day we get to wake up and enjoy another day of life is a huge blessing. And I love that you've taken a trial of yours and turned it into something positive to help others. And so thank you so much. And again, thank you so much for being here on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.